Well, it is great to uh, gather together like this uh, on this day. Um, if you are a guest with us today, my name is Lee, one of the pastors here at Crossridge. And uh, today uh, is Good Friday. The title on the screens behind me say Good Friday Part 4. Uh, the reason for that is because as a church, we've been making our way through the Gospel of John together. And what we find in the Gospel of John is that everything slows down for the final week of Jesus' life, and things slow down significantly when we get to the events of Good Friday. We've spent the last three Sundays as a church exploring Good Friday together, and we're going to continue to do that this morning. Uh, And honestly, if I were doing this again, if I were to break it down again, I think I would actually do this in five parts, not four. So we've already looked at the trial of Jesus, the sentence of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. Today, we're going to look at the death and the burial of Jesus. And my outline for you to follow along is really going to be dead simple. I want to say something about the significance of Jesus' death, and I want to say something about the significance of Jesus' burial. So we learn about Jesus' death, or John chapter 19 is where we are. Chapter 19, verses 28 to 30, tells us about the death of Jesus. And here's what's recorded for us. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, just three verses, but there's a lot that is communicated in those three verses. And the first thing we need to know as we consider the death of Jesus is that Jesus' death accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. That is the main thrust of these verses. You can see it in the fact that the root word for finished is used three times in these three verses. Verse 28 begins by saying, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, everything in his life and ministry led up to and culminated in this moment. The verse goes on to say that Jesus said, I thirst, and that his saying this was to fulfill, literally to complete, to finish the Scripture. And the Scripture being referred to is most likely Psalm 69, verse 21, which says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That is exactly what happens here. The third use of the word finished is found in verse 30, where it tells us that Jesus said, it is finished, and then bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So the question is, what does it mean to say that Jesus, knowing all that, knowing now that all was finished, or what did he mean when he said, it is finished? Did Jesus just mean that his time on the cross was now finished? Now, we know, actually, that Jesus is going to be buried. He's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to ascend into heaven. So what does it mean to say that it's finished? Or what does it mean to say that Jesus' death accomplished everything necessary for our salvation? What does he mean when he says, it is finished? And I think there are two main answers to that. 
The first one is that Jesus fulfilled the mission God gave him. If you've read through the Gospels, uh, or even if you haven't, uh, you would know that Jesus accomplished a lot during his three years of public ministry. He taught massive crowds. People flocked from all over the place to hear his teaching, to hear his wisdom. And when those crowds gathered and they heard him teach, they, they would say things like, we've never heard anything like this. Jesus performed many miracles or many signs. He healed the sick. He restored sight to the blind. He made the lame to walk again. He fed the hungry. But while all of those things demonstrated what the kingdom of God is like and what it will be like, they were not the ultimate fulfillment of his mission. And the point is that Jesus' death on the cross was not sort of plan B. His death on the cross is the reason that he came. That's the mission God gave him. All the way back in John chapter 1, the very first time John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says this, or we read this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the mission of Jesus, to come into the world as the Lamb of God who would bear the sin of the world. That was the mission of Jesus. That's the reason for his coming. Listen to the way Jesus summed up his own mission. He said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul would later say it like this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So the reason for Jesus' coming, the mission God gave him, was not just to show us a better way to live. The reason for his coming was to save us from our sin. And he did that by dying on the cross and taking the penalty of our sins upon himself. That was his mission. And when he says it is finished, he's fulfilled that mission. The second thing it means is that Jesus fulfilled the law completely. Now, a question we don't ask much in our day is, how can I be in a right standing before God? Or how can I be in a right relationship before God? Most of us just assume, well, of course, I'm in a right relationship with God. I mean, I'm a pretty nice guy. I've never killed anybody. And even if I'm not perfect, you know, I look around and I know there's lots of people who are worse than me. So, of course, I would be in a right standing or right relationship with God. But the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's every one of us. Breaking one of God's commandments means that there is a separation between us and God. And the question is, how do we bridge that gap? Now, we could try to bridge it by keeping God's law perfectly, doing everything that he says. But none of us can do that. And in fact, the Old Testament law contained a provision for that fact. What you would do is that you would make a sacrifice to God as a way to make atonement for your sins, to cover your sins. As a matter of fact, you would make lots of offerings. 
Lots of sacrifices, sin offerings, peace offerings, guilt offerings. On the Day of Atonement, there would be a massive offering that took place. But those offerings and those sacrifices could never adequately cover or pay for your sin. And so through Jesus, God introduced a better way. Jesus becomes our sacrifice. In the book of Romans, we read this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, we no longer become righteous by keeping the law. He's the end of the law to everyone who believes. Our right standing before God is no longer conditioned on our ability or inability to keep God's law perfectly. We have one who has done that for us. And the best commentary on this is actually the book of Hebrews. I want you to listen to a couple of paragraphs from that book, from chapter 10. It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that is the requirements of the law, to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Then it goes on to say, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what does it mean when Jesus says it is finished? What does it mean when it says he knows that all has been done, all has been accomplished, all has been completed? It means that he has kept God's law perfectly And he has become the only possible way to deal with our sin once and for all. One sacrifice for all time. It is finished. So this passage helps us understand something about the death of Jesus. But if we keep reading, we also discover something about the burial of Jesus. And we find the account of Jesus' burial in verses 38 to 42. And there it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came away and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus 
there. And what I want to say to you here is that Jesus' burial is more significant than you think. Now, on the whole, I think we tend to neglect or tend to ignore or just tend to read over very quickly the account of Jesus' burial. I mean, it's here, but what is the significance of it? Well, it's interesting. When Paul summarizes the gospel, he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? I've read that verse lots of times. We understand and we emphasize the death part, and we understand and we emphasize the resurrection part, but what are we supposed to make of the burial part? When was the last time you heard a message on the burial of Jesus? Well, I think there's at least three things to note about the burial of Jesus. The first one is simply the confirmation that he really was dead. Now, maybe that seems like a strange point to make, but it's important to understand. And one of the reasons it's important to understand it is because for a variety of reasons, some people don't think that Jesus actually died on the cross. For some, it's just a way to explain away the resurrection of Jesus. There's a theory known as the swoon theory, and this is the belief that Jesus didn't really die at his crucifixion. I mean, he wasn't there that long but he was merely unconscious when he was laid in the tomb. And when he was laid in the tomb, the cool garden air, in that time, he was resuscitated. And it's not just some secular historians that hold to this. Some Muslim interpreters take that same position. There's a passage in the Quran that reads like this. That they said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. But they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubts with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow for a surety. They killed him not. Nay, Allah raised him up unto himself, and Allah is exalted in power wise. Now, Muslim scholars take different views on the meaning of those verses, But for some, the best explanation is what I referred to as the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. How could he if he's God's prophet or God's Messiah? Now, this passage and the next one in John 20 actually render that impossible. It says here, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds worth, to anoint the body of Jesus. The passage then goes on to describe Jewish burial practices says, so they took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So we would need to believe that Jesus, having just endured beatings and a Roman flogging and a crucifixion, was resurrected or was resuscitated in the cool air of that garden tomb. Somehow managed to unbind himself from the tightly wrapped burial cloths and the 75 pounds of spices. And I would say that it takes less faith to believe in the resurrection of Jesus than it does to believe in that. Jesus was not mostly dead, to borrow a phrase from the princess bride. Jesus experienced real pain, real thirst, and real death. The second reason the burial of Jesus is important is because it marks the transition 
between Jesus' suffering and humiliation and his exaltation. And I'm indebted to Stephen Lawson for that insight. The burial of Jesus is actually a transitional event. So when we look at all that Jesus endured, the opposition, the mocking, the flogging, being stripped of his clothes, being nailed to a cross, we can see all of it demonstrates his suffering, his humiliation. Jesus has been treated like a common criminal, and in fact, worse than a common criminal. The other gospel writers tell us that as Jesus hung there, those who passed by shook their heads. They hurled insults at him. They taunted him. But now, we actually begin to see something very different. The Roman practice for those who were crucified was to throw the bodies on a trash heap and let them decompose. But notice what happens here. Joseph of Arimathea steps forward and he asks that he might have the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. He has a tomb. Verse 41 says this. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Now this again was the fulfillment of a prophecy. Isaiah made this prophecy about the Messiah. He said, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. But more than just the fulfillment of prophecy, think about the significance of this. Think about the significance of Jesus' burial. Jesus is laid in a tomb that no one has ever been laid in. Now, I think, you know, we're all familiar with the story of Jesus' birth, how there was no room in the inn and Jesus was, you know, born in a stable or a cave, laid in a feeding trough. I mean, hardly a reception fit for a king. But now, immediately after his death, he's given a proper burial. A burial fit for royalty in a tomb. No one has ever been laid in this tomb. Now, he's not going to stay in that tomb for long. But this act by Joseph already begins to indicate something about the significance of Jesus' death. It begins to move us to that exaltation of Jesus. Then I think there's a third thing to note about Jesus' burial, and that is that it signals the new life for all who follow him. I know it's Good Friday. I know some people like a somber Good Friday service. And it is important for us to reflect on the death of Jesus on the cross. Not everything needs to be happy clappy. But we should also understand that even in the midst of the great darkness of the cross, there is a glimmer of light. You know, in Mark's gospel, we read this. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So those who didn't recognize who Jesus was in his life began to recognize it after his death. And we're told here that Joseph of Arimathea was a sort of secret disciple of Jesus. And the reason he was a secret disciple is for fear of the Jews. He knew that if he declared himself to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus, 
he would lose his position. He would lose his social standing in the community, and he wasn't ready to do that. But there was something about the death of Jesus that emboldened him. It made him step forward and ask for the body of Jesus. It made him say, I'm going to put the body of Jesus in my tomb. It was hardly a private act. And then another individual who's mentioned along with Joseph of Arimathea, that man is Nicodemus. We actually met him before in the Gospel of John. He's the one that came to Jesus by night. Says in John 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and no one, for no one can do these signs unless that you do unless God is with him. And if you remember the story, you will remember that Jesus looks at Nicodemus. He's unimpressed with his religious credentials, and he says, unless you're born again, you won't enter the kingdom of God. Now, we don't read anything in John chapter 3 about the conversion of Nicodemus. But we do meet him again in chapter 7. And there it says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So Nicodemus is part of the Jewish ruling council. He doesn't want to jeopardize that position. But he's kind of like a definite maybe at this point. There's something about Jesus. And now, at the point of Jesus' death and his burial, Nicodemus steps out of the shadows. And from this point forward, he leaves his old life behind. And it's interesting that when we think about the burial of Jesus, Paul actually makes a point about our burial with Jesus. Romans chapter 6, we read, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You see, our old self is buried with Christ. It's our new self that is raised. And that means that we no longer stand before God in all of our sin and all of our shame, all of that is buried. And we stand before God with the righteousness of Christ. Our old life is gone. And Jesus utterly transforms us. The last week when we celebrated a communion, Sam made, brought the good reminder that Jesus didn't die for some future version of me. It's while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But while he didn't die for a future version of me, actually the death of Jesus is what, and, the, and burial with him, being united with him, is what actually gives us that new life and brings us to that future version. So we ought to glory in this. We ought to glory in the fact we are united with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. So we're going to celebrate uh, communion together this morning as we do as a church. I'm going to ask the servers if they would come forward and the band to come and play. And as they do that, think about your union with Christ. If you are united with Christ, you have put your faith in him. He is the end of the law for righteousness for you because you believe.
Celebrate communion knowing your standing before God is on the basis of what Jesus has done. So come forward, take the elements, the bread that represents Christ's body, the cup that represents his blood shed for us, and then we'll participate together at the end.